Friends, thanks for joining us once more for another edition of the Progressive Rugby League Book Club. So far, PRL Book Club has taken us to Vichy, France during World War II for the Forbidden Game, Southern California in the 50s for No Helmets Required, and into the mind of Windang's Steve Mascord for Touchstones. Today we go around the Rugby League globe as we talk the Rugby League World Cup. Now the Rugby League World Cup has been an enigmatic presence on the Rugby League scene since its birth in France in 1954. And like drought and flooding rains, or a diet that lacks fibre, its appearance could accurately be described as irregular. As such, fans of the game have had a somewhat distant relationship with what should be a high point in the Rugby League calendar. In truth, the Rugby League World Cup has sometimes had a hard time finding a place in any year's calendar, let alone the hearts of Rugby League fans. But could all this be changing? Administrators have finally started seeing the value in international Rugby League again. Rugby League World Cups even now have a semblance of regularity, and on cue, fans are beginning to sense that there might just be something special about this crazy little tournament. Today, we look at the history of the Rugby League World Cup via a book by the name of Their Finest Hour by Andrew Marmot. Andrew has provided a fine contribution to the Rugby League canon, and in fact, just through its publication, the book has provided a little extra luster to the concept, which is exactly what the Rugby League World Cup needs. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the voice of John O'Duncan, and joining me in our lo-fi PRL studios is Minister for Enthusiasm, Big Al. <laughs> That's the title I've always wanted. I'm so <laughs> thank you, John. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to pick you up on one thing. Go for it. Um, as you know, we're a, we're a, we've got a vast international audience. We do. I believe the residents of Southern California actually prefer to be, for the, the region to be referred to now as SoCal. SoCal. So right. you just want to, if you want to... Being with the locals, that's what, that's what you're called. So no we took them to SoCal. Yeah, oh, yeah, we, we sure did. What, a, what an episode that was. And thanks for all your feedback, ladies and gentlemen, on No Helmets Required and the Touchstones and Forbidden Game Book Club. So have a listen if you haven't already. But this, on this occasion, we are talking their finest hour, the history of the Rugby League World Cup in 10 matches by Andrew Marmot. What do you think, Big Al? Uh, I thought for the international rugby league enthusiast, this is a rousing read. It really gets the... Um, uh, gets the blood pumping and the enthusiasm level, the enthusiasm uh, boiling is is able to get even higher for a fellow <laughs> like me. But it's really a great, um, I mean, it's a, a great selection of ten matches um, that, I mean, matches that were themselves great games, but they sit within these really interesting mm. uh, periods within the game, within the history of the World Cup itself. Yeah. Um, we have you know great little tidbits of information, um, trivial, uh, you know, trivial style facts, and. Um, yeah, really interesting stuff to learn about the tournament that we know and love. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It sells itself as the history of the Rugby League World, Rugby League World Cup in 10 matches, but it's it's so much more. It's like a it's actually a handy little proxy for the history of international rugby league since the 50s. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like you say, it brings to life not just the individual matches, but the World Cups that featured them, as well as giving a, a sort of a, a good context of the international scene in the years surrounding those games. Yeah. I would like to think of each match Consider each chapter of the book is divided up into chapters of 10, yeah. ten matches. So yeah. consider each chapter an ice cream sundae. <laughs> and within it, you've got, you know, you've got um, administrative chucking it around, you've got oh, entrepreneurial, you've got, you know, backyard, you've got you know, um, shenanigans and you've got on field controversy and all that sort of stuff. And then the cherry on top is the actual game itself. Yeah, exactly. Everything else, that's the, you know, the ice cream and the sauce and the whipped cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And some sort of textural element as well, which I, f- I find most Sundays need, like some Maltesers, <laughs> peanuts if you're a classic man. Well, absolutely. And, and 
it also gives a, a bit of insight from a commercial sense of what worked and what didn't for mm. each of those World Cups, especially yeah. for the World Cups of the past 30 years. So today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to reflect on the book, but focus on a few World Cups in particular and look at a few key moments and quirky anecdotes that, that kind of accompany them. So where should we start, Big? What do you think? I think we should start right at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. Let's talk 1954, where it all began. And the first tournament, which was held in France, and it was Paul Barrier. Is that how you, you'd pronounce it? I just, in my head, I was saying it, Bieri. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'm going to go with my attempt, Barrier. Uh, he was a French Rugby League Federation president and former French resistance fighter in World War II, came up with the concept. This is what a man. <laughs> and it was a, a golden period for French Rugby League where, where France was at its best. They were actually pushing the game forward, both on and off the field. And who can forget their 2-1 series triumph in Australia in 1951. They were playing rugby league no one had seen before, full of attacking flair and using their forwards not just as workers but as attacking weapons. That, that's what set them apart. And, and of course, Big, it was a, a miracle that France was in such a position at all, as was so soon after rugby league was banned by the Vichy collaborationist government during World War yeah. II. Outlawed, what, 14 years earlier or something like that? Uh, no, it would have been about, uh, yeah, about oh, no, eight, ten, yeah, 12 years. Ten, yeah. oh, anyway. Whatever. Between 10 and 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> we can agree on that. So for France, the, the tournament was a triumph on so many levels. A, that a rugby league ex- existed and was backfiring. B, that the national team was world-leading somehow. And C, that they convinced Great Britain and Australia to go along with the World Cup concept. Now, Big, you just think... Back to that period, well, we went around, but you, you just marvel. Imagine France being a world power in rugby league. I think that's one of the things that, I mean, I would I would love to have seen that. I hope to live uh, long enough to see that happen again. Mm. But I think it's it's lost on all modern-day rugby league fans, so people that are you know our age or younger that follow the Parramatta Reels or the yep. Melbourne Storm or whatever have no concepts of France having a competitive team mm. one that was so good, like so good that um could beat australia on a regular basis yeah and i think this book does a, a really good um job of of highlighting that yeah um and it's yeah to the to the the modern day rugby league fan it's just it's baffling it's a, mm. it's a scenario that you, you couldn't comprehend france being a, a world power in the game and it, they were favorites for the tournament uh, from what i can gather they're obviously hosting the tournament there were four teams great britain australia new zealand joined them and they made the final, and against them was a Great Britain team that seemingly was all over the shop. They had many players who weren't interested in playing at all. Uh, there were money issues. Players were banned for disciplinary issues on an earlier tour, which led to other players boycotting the national team. And Dave Ballantyne, a sportsman, he was captain and coach. Uh, he was coach because they couldn't afford a coach. Mm-hmm. And on, upon their arrival in Paris for the World Cup, they got lost and actually <laughs> didn't have any footballs. And they ended there was up, no Google Translate back then as well. So. <laughs> and they ended up training with a sock. Yeah. Uh, so this was a, a bit of a rabble. Um, but amazingly, yeah. Great Britain ended up conjuring up an unlikely victory in what was French rugby league legend Puy Aubert's only probably glaring hole in his otherwise stellar CV. Now, I'd like to... I always, whenever I get a chance, I like to talk about Aubert. What a character he was. Uh, he had great attacking flair. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, perhaps um, he's maybe France's Tommy Radonikus. 
in, in the sort of in the in the cigarettes and, and in the uh, cult figure status. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. I don't I don't think he bashed that many people. Or... No, 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 no. On the field, no. <laughs> yeah, but, um, the cult figure the cult status. Figure status. Yeah, I mean, he had great attacking flair and an enormous boot and sort of the, a laissez-faire attitude that sort of captured the imagination. Like I say. Cult figure status around the world. He's yeah, sort of like a portly fellow. Picture, isn't picture it? Tom Rudonicus with a French accent. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. I'm not quite. <laughs> no. I'm not quite there, but impressive. And interestingly, that um, during that period of the early '50s, what this book uh, tells us is he had a bit of a running battle with the great Clive Churchill mm. uh, over those periods. As we said, France was beating Australia quite regularly, and he got under the skin of Churchill, and he would say he, he's got his measure. And it really got on the skin of Churchill, who said later in his uh, autobiography that he didn't rape or burn at all. Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's what you say when you're coughing it. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was quite a, a tournament. Uh, you, at the end of that tournament, people were thinking, yep, well done. What could become of this tournament? Mm, I think, um, which is surprising seeing is when it first started, um, and this still happens today, but the indifference of, I guess, Australia and Great Britain. So the tournament was for four nations. Yeah. France, New Zealand, Australia and Great Britain. Yeah. And because Australia and Great Britain already had their highly lucrative Ashes series. Yeah. They didn't want any bo- any part of a, a World Cup. Um, yeah. Didn't, didn't want to bother with it, which sort of, you know, lines up very nicely with some of the attitudes towards state of origin mm. um, and, you know, sacrificing that for potential gains on the international yeah. stage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, they all referred to it um, as the Tin Pot Cup. When they first did, started. Didn't I they? think that's the, that's the title of the chapter in the book. Yeah, it's yeah, mentioned so. somewhere. Um, and yeah, for it to actually get off the ground was a um, a massive effort in itself. Yeah. And then, um, as you were saying, you know, Great Britain's reluctance to even field a team basically. They didn't even <laughs> rock up with uniforms. Um, says a lot as well. But you know, it got going. It was visionary. And once again, we had to rely on the French Rugby League to provide the. The happy platform for us yep. all to enjoy the game that we know and love. We should be thankful. And from Great Britain's perspective, I mean, the the captain and coach was a Scotsman. I mean, that's something that uh, you know you sort of yearn for. You yearn for a, a strong Scottish presence in British, not only British but international rugby league. Obviously, they're fighting for qualification in the coming World Cup. But um, you know, wouldn't it be great if we already had a, a strong Scotland, a strong strong Wales? Uh, you know, they've I think, all had I their think moments. At a later chapter in this book, it mentions that Scotland uh, rugby league didn't actually officially exist in Scotland until 1997. Until the 90s, I think. <laughs> so, you know, we'll you, you got to wonder. We'll and also, the finals played in front of 30,000 people in Paris. In Paris. Oh. In Paris. So obviously now France in French rugby league is pretty much uh, just focused on the south. But it was popular back then, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was quite amazing to come back from the banning in World War Two. Uh, to near the top of the game, but then obviously they pretty much fizzled, um, slowly, gradually fizzled out. I think yep. the the government banned rugby league from schools, and that probably was one of the main reasons why it never recaptured its mm. its glory from the fifties. But still, we can um, we can memorialise. We can, and we can we can recognise. Never forget. Never forget. And also, don't stop dreaming. <laughs> we can get back there again. It's a good point. Good point. Now, we're going to skip ahead to 1970, the next focus tournament. Now, in between there, we had a tournament in 1957, which Australia Australia won. 1960, Great Britain won. 1968, we had to wait uh, eight years between 60 and 68 for Australia to beat France in a World Cup in Australia. And then we head to Great Britain for the World Cup in 1970. Now, gee whiz, in a brutal era for rugby league, the 1970 World Cup final 
was one of the most violent matches in the game's history. There were plenty of there was plenty of outrage at the time, and it probably stunted the game's growth to some extent during that period. But from the cocoon of 2019, though, that sport violence hybrid, well, it's, it's kind of fascinating to to observe. Now, the 1970 Australians uh, were coached by Harry Barr, a legend who spent most most of his playing career in Britain. Now, his initial coaching stint for Australia was disappointing in 1962 after his series loss in the Ashes to Great Britain. So after that, he quit to concentrate on club coaching, some hospitality gigs, and driving a taxi. <laughs> that, that is like, that's just so... I love those that just like That's Tommy Rodonicus again, driving a taxi. No, but like, that's just... Give up professional rugby league, some hospital jobs, and, and drive a taxi. Can you imagine uh, Wayne Bennett just saying to the England, England team, screw you guys, I'm concentrating on Uber. Yeah, <laughs> I don't need this. So player discipline was an issue for Bath, and, and the board didn't give him the control he sought. But then, in a chance encounter in 1967, while driving his taxi, uh, he happened to pick up the ARL president, Bill Buckley. They got talking, and all of a sudden, Bath was back, and with the control he wanted. Do you think Bill Buckley recognised Bath? Or uh, was this was this a famous like taxi driver telling, you know, <laughs> yeah. politician in the back seat what he what, how he really thinks it should happen and it actually happened? And it actually happened. Perhaps. Maybe or maybe Bill Buckley saw the cab and just went, Oh, I'd like to go across town, please. But he had a plan all along. Oh uh, right. Maybe it was a good taxi. Yeah. yeah like First that. time ever. So they won the nineteen sixty eight World Cup under Bath, but only made the final of nineteen seventy on points differential after only winning one of their three pool games. Their opponents, Great Britain, were the outstanding team in the comp. They won all three games and had beaten Australia in the Ashes of the same year. So they were the heavy favourites in that final. And it was a final that Great Britain didn't even want to play because there was a there seemed to be an understanding that this tournament would be first past the post. Yes, they won. We were, <laughs> they won. <laughs> what are you talking about? We won already. But in true rugby league style... Uh, there was a final hastily arranged. Well, they needed the ticket sales, I think. Is that's that... right. <laughs> which probably fed into the style of game it became somewhat, uh, which was one of the most violent matches of all time. What were your thoughts reading this one, Big Al? This was a pretty intense uh, part of the book, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I thought the, the, the period of the 70s, I didn't realise... I mean, I always knew that prior to... Um, I guess prior to the mid-90s, mm. rugby league was pretty... Um, pretty full on I'll yeah. say on the field and, and you look at some of that archival footage of um, 70s the se- games in the 70s it, it's almost break it's everything but a fight I suppose at certain <laughs> yeah. periods but I never really um, expected that I just didn't ever think of that on the world, on the international stage so mm-hmm. reading about both is it two games from the 70s reading about all the, the, the yeah. both the World Cup matches highlighted in this book in the 70s um, I found it really um, I don't want to say shocking but unexpected I guess the, yeah, the, right. the level of brutality um, that was on the field yeah, I mean, and to be fair on the Great Britain team, they were tired after a long season. They they thought they had the tournament won. Didn't even want to be there. Didn't want to be there. And they found out they had to play the, the final. So it was already a, a brutal period. They, they played a, a really pretty violent Ashes series earlier that year. And this game was, was ugly. Yeah. And it, it was probably the difference between the winners and losers in the end because it was Australia who were more interested in playing footy than being violent. While according to the book and according to anecdotes from players, including great British players, um, Great Britain were more interested in, in the opposite. And like I say, it was probably the difference in the end. And, and Great Britain players uh, subsequently, including Malcolm Reilly, they reflected in the future years and, and they said they, they got it totally wrong. And after the, the game, 
when there were handshakes all around. There were handshakes all around except for from one person, uh, John Atkinson, who was a winger for Great Britain, who actually headbutted uh, Australia's Eric Sims, which started an all-in all brawl. Woo! Police had to get involved. <laughs> so, Police involved. It was, That's great. Uh, so, yeah, they obviously got it wrong. But some of the the pain that some of the, the players had to play through, um, like you say, that, there was a lot of kicking scrums. And I know Billy Smith and John O'Neill, they played with some massive leg gashes where you could actually yeah, see, bone. see oh. all the way to the bone. Oh, God. Imagine running on that. Imagine copping a tackle when you got that sort of gash. Exactly. Yeah. And so, like I said before, it probably stunted the growth of rugby league to an extent. I mean, the press was, the British press was all over that game saying it was a disgrace. Um, it wasn't sport. It yeah. was just thuggery. And but one, one little anecdote, you love these little anecdotes from the game, but in, in one of the, the most violent games of all time the australian player who scored a decisive try in the match was a catholic priest oh, john coots <laughs> john coots uh isn't that amazing like and the stories about the violence of the game but the players they never did the rough stuff on him mm. i said sorry father you know all that sort of stuff yeah, yeah. so isn't that amazing but they, they only didn't do the rough stuff on him because they knew that he was i cast the out it was because, because of his religious position he would could not act out in violence. So if yeah. they hit him, they knew he couldn't hit him back. So they're like, all right, fine. We're just not yeah. going to hit this guy. Yeah, so I just find that quite staggering. But then, of course, when somebody hit him, the Australian team turned around and... Yeah, that's right. They clobbered, back. <laughs> yeah. clobbered the bejesus out of the field. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that was 1970, a, a victory for Australia against uh, Great Britain and against, against the odds, you would say. So, you know, we've had 1954, the first World Cup. We've had 1970, probably the most violent. We're going to skip... All the way to 1995. This is an interesting period of time, wasn't Put it? on your fluoro. Now, in between that time, uh, we had 1972, where the last time Great Britain won a World Cup. We're going to save that one for our next book club, because that obviously is a focal period for Clive Sullivan. That's the, the, the focus of our next book club, which is True Professional by James Oddy. 1975, Australia beat England. In 19, 1977, Australia beat England. And then... There's a gap of eight years. So if people have been paying attention, as I'm going through these World Cups, you can see it's not uh, very regular. You're not getting a tournament every four years. It's a stop-start affair. It's a stop-start affair. You're going, every two years, if it's going well, oh, it's not really making money. Let's do it eight, in eight years' time. But then we had a couple of tournaments in the 80s, That one that went from 1985 to 1988. So there's another uh, administrative chucking it around. So <laughs> instead of doing a tournament over two weeks, let's do it over three years. <laughs> Uh, which Australia won. They beat New Zealand at Eden Park in that final. Uh, and w once again, there was a tournament from 1989 to 1992, which Australia beat Great Britain in that final. So we finally make it to 1995, and we've finally got an actual tournament again. And this was a period of time, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in the early 90s pre preceding this tournament, International Rugby League was beginning to become big business again. Uh, Great Britain was rising after a dismal 1980s on the back of players like Gary Schofield, Ellery Hanley, Martin Afire, Sean Edwards, and crowds were flocking to some great Ashes battles as well as a tight 1992 final at Wembley, like I said, like I said, won by Australia. Then in 1995, Super League happened, which made things somewhat complicated, particularly for the international game. Now, from an outsider's viewpoint, I might be wrong, English listeners, so correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed pretty straightforward for the rugby league in the UK. They needed cash, <laughs> and News Limited provided it. They couldn't believe their luck, I imagine. 
In Australia, it was a, it was much more complicated. The game was actually in best ever shape. It was flying, and what unfolded was really a, a battle for the game's soul. It was emotional, and Big Al it took a massive toll. We all know. And in unfortunate timing for the international game, in the midst of all this turmoil going on in Australia, there was a World Cup planned for the end of 1995, and the Australian Rugby League decided to send a squad sans any players signed to Super League. So that that excluded, therefore, players from the Canberra Raiders, the Brisbane Broncos, the Canterbury Bulldogs, and Penrith Panthers. Now, I'm going to go through, Big Al, the Premiers from 1989 to 1995. In 1989, Canberra beat the Tigers. Sorry to bring that yeah, up. Sure did. Someone told me that. Uh, 1990, they won again, beating mm-hmm. Penrith. 91, Penrith beat Canberra. 92, 93, Brisbane. 94, Canberra does it again. 95, the Bulldogs. All these teams are Super League teams. Yeah. Right, so the point being, this was a massively understrength Australian team. Now, of course, Australia has the depth of the earth. Mm. And like... Uh, you know, Andrew Marmot, who we talked to later, he says Australia had some very exciting young players, people like Andrew Johns, Brad Fittler. But still, you were missing out. Um, the tournament, unfortunately, missed out on having the cream of the crop. But despite all that, it was actually a very exciting tournament. What did you take out from that period of the book and that tournament in general, Big? Well, I'm going to say this is probably one of the most... Uh, I was saying before that to have... For France to host and put on the World Cup in 1954 itself was visionary. Mm. But I'm going to say this was also a period of visionary, future-looking, um, you know, nation-building, <laughs> rugby league nation-building, um, and literal nation-building in, actually in, ter- in rugby league terms. That's right. For the World Cup. So you're talking about times. This is where the, the Pacific Islands mm. got their own teams. They expanded. The, they expanded the, the field of teams to include. Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, PNG. They did. They took a page out of the Winfield Cup and got Diana Ross oh, to, be oh. the, to be like the, to, to sing the to sing the song. Apparently she might. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Come there. on, what are you doing? <laughs> um, you know, the Great Britain was split to become England. Um, mm. Did Scotland have a team? But yeah, Wales, 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 Wales definitely. Yeah, and the, the story of the the Welsh team is is amazing as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and just forget it. Cash, cash, cash. There was just cash flying everywhere. Was, Everybody's was. idea was great. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and there were some fabulous matches, may I say. When we talk about Tonga today, we get very excited about Tonga today, and rightly so. They are a phenomenon, and they're very exciting. But, you know, Tonga almost, they came within a whisker of beating New Zealand. They really should have beaten New Zealand. They lost 25-24 in the end. And then you've got um, teams like Wales, like you mentioned. They made a, a stirring run to the semis, and that really got Welsh Rugby League going for a very short period of time. So um, Australia, in the end, they lost their first game of the tournament to England, then had to face New Zealand in a semi-final that really went down as one of the greats. Mm. I mean, this was a, a game that Australia was up, I think, by 14 points with not much time to go. New Zealand came back, had a kick to win the match from the sideline with, from one of the best kickers from that generation, Matthew Ridge. And he totally muffed it. He totally he muffed it. Did, did he choke or did he just, like... I don't know. Did he say chokes? Uh, I mean, uh, the kick was horrible. I mean, mm. it's one thing to miss it by a shade, but to, to really... Just, just do it. Just so, enough, unfortunately, yeah, so it's probably a bit of a choke. And reading the anecdotes that Andrew shares with us um, from Richie Barnett, he says, you know, once that kick didn't make it, he sort of knew it was game over. So... Um, Australia won that game 30-20 in extra time. Went on to win the final 16-8... 
So it was a tournament, yeah, like you say, it really showed the potential uh, of the Pacific nations, didn't it? It, it certainly did, but I, th- I think it also highlights just how far out in front Australia was pulling away from everybody else, mm. even in the like after the Super League War. You took out the top four teams yeah. for the last five years, and they, they, all those players weren't eligible for Australia. Yeah. Oh, you back up halfbacks Andrew Johns. <laughs> you have you back up halves combinations Andrew Johns and Brad Fittler. Like, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, like, that's it's, right. It's just, it, this is probably the beginning. I mean, Australia had been far out, far out in front for a while, but mm. this really, this moment in time, I think, like, just... Well, what, what interested interested me, not necessarily in this part of the book, but in an earlier stage, we're talking about the 80s, where this is a period where Australia had taken on state of origin and obviously the quality of football was, was sky high. And at the same time, it seemed British players, they decided to just you know, go for a long lunch. <laughs> Australia got to um, Great Britain in 1982 and they were clearly had a superior fitness. Mm. Uh, they ran roughshod over them for an Invincibles tour, undefeated, the same in 1986. And it was in the early 90s, like I said, those players, Martin Fire, Ellery Hanley, Gary Schofield, that um, they were starting to edge their way back. But like you say, Australia had another golden generation coming in that mid-90s period. Uh, so, yeah, it was a, actually an unbelievable performance to, to win that World Cup against full-strength New Zealand and English teams. And like, like you say, it was the potential of the Pacific Nations in that World Cup, but it also, at a time when it looked like international rugby league was about to, to jet off to stratospheric heights, unfortunately, it had to take a back seat because what was going on in the game in Australia mm. with what happened with Super League. And there's no doubt about it that that period really um, ate into international rugby league. Australians well, stopped caring. They had to get their own house in order. It, it, it ate into everything. Like, it ate into International Rugby League and it also ate into the game in Australia. And we've spent many an episode discussing about the, the outbreak of Super League. Yeah, we um, have. And the rise of other sporting codes in Australia um, yeah. to fill the void as things were, and, you know, the loss of the Bears and it doesn't come back and all that sort of stuff. It's, we won't get into that right now because <laughs> we're focusing on the book, but yes. So, yeah, I mean, after that period, there was another tournament in 2000 where Australia beat New Zealand. And then... Another eight years uh, before the next one in 2008. So uh, this is a pretty important tournament. So the World Cup in 2000, that fizzled. Um, the International Rugby League, they aimed big. They took the game outside um, the heartlands to places like Glasgow, Edinburgh, Belfast, Dublin, and Twickenham. Uh, but they didn't really have the resources to pull it off. And like we were saying before, Australia was so far ahead of their closest rivals in the tournament, so it couldn't really get any momentum. Can I, can I say something? Yeah, so, you're right, the, the, the 2000 World Cup fizzled. Mm. I think it was just all caught up in that, and I'm not making a joke here, it was caught up in the millennium hype. Like, right. back then, <laughs> in, if you were doing something in the year 2000, it just had to be the best thing ever, because yeah. there was this idea that, like, I don't know, it's the millennium, it's got to have, <laughs> robots have to play the ball, like, everyone has to be served, Yeah. you know. I mean, look at it another way. It's good to have a crack. I mean, the point, oh, problem was they didn't have... You've got to have a crack, but like you said, they, they probably um, overreached. Overreached, yeah. I think that's fair. They probably didn't have the resources either. But it was an interesting tournament. We had a listener tweet us as he knew we were doing this episode, and he was a bit uh, bemused by the tournament. There was a New Zealand Maori team, which um, was in the World Cup, and he was a bit confused by that. Uh, he said, why were Lebanon there? They, they didn't play uh, rugby league in Lebanon at that period. Uh, Scotland only had one player who was born in Scotland. I mean, but at the same time, you, you can sort of scoff at that, but at the same time, they're pretty progressive concepts in a way, like Lebanon now has rugby league played in Lebanon, maybe because of this. 
and you know Lebanon have done a decent job over the last ten or fifteen years. I agree. Um, Scotland, you know, what could have been if you if you sort of nursed it a bit a bit more from that. Um, the New Zealand Maori, that's a I think that's a nice uh, progressive statement by the International Rugby League at the time. I think so. Yeah, they said, you know, we recognise you and your nationhood. Uh, welcome to the tournament. It's probably difficult to have that sort of thing happen on a long-term basis, but I think as a statement, you know, kudos. Yes. But anyway, it, it didn't continue. So the, the 2000 World Cup, like I say, Australia was so far ahead, they ended up um, winning the final easily, easily putting 40 on New Zealand, who had put 49 points on England in the semi-final. So... Um, so come 2008, which is the tournament we're focusing on now, um, there hadn't been a World Cup in eight years. There were fears that it would be another one-way procession, and it was looking that way early on. I mean, Australia beat New Zealand 30-6 to in the opening game. Then they put 50 on England. Um, so we're starting to wonder, gee whiz, if, if you get the same result in the final, there might be another eight or ten yeah. years before the next World Cup. <laughs> but the good news was... The tournament was actually a pretty slick operation. Colin Love deserves credit, yeah, and, yeah. and Andrew gives Colin Love a lot of credit. Yeah, he doesn't chuck it around when he uh, administrates. <laughs> That's right. And the tournament was actually generating uh, interest beyond the big three. So that was that was quite helpful. So the Australian public, I think, largely warmed to that. I remember 2008, despite the fact that um, it looked like Australia at the time looked like it was just going to be a one-way mm-hmm. you know, road, um, a lot of, like, you know, junior nations were coming up. I mean, remember Jared Hayne played very well for Fiji. Sort of captured. That was that was the beginning of because it was two thousand eight, so before mm. his golden period in two thousand nine. That That's was, right. Like he would say that like the making of that year was his time with the Fijian team. And, yeah. Like, you know, getting closer to God or you know reading his Bible or whatever it was. Yeah. It was his That's time. right. Really set him you know set him up for a good year. Yes, you could say that again. So, like I said, if this tournament ended in another flogging at the hands of Australia, then you wonder what the future of the Rugby League World Cup would be. But you know what, Big Al? That didn't happen at all. As it happened, well, you tell us what happened. Uh, I'm pretty sure New Zealand won <laughs> the whole thing. They did. And I think it's fair to say breathe life back into, you know, a stuttering concept. Yeah, I think uh, I've got some, like, I've got some thoughts on New Zealand winning. I think New Zealand winning, I mean, it was a famous win. You know, Billy Slater's Brain fluff and the flip back in the field, yeah, eventually right. the score and all that sort of stuff. It was a um, New Zealand winning in itself is fantastic. It's awesome to see like the the list of previous winners and it's like Australia, Australia, oh New Zealand, Australia. Yeah. Let, let some diversity in that. Um, I'm going to say I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I Do don't it. think the game capitalised in New Zealand on that enough because yeah. I think and I think that probably just suffers from the fact that this was the like this was the first World Cup in um, eight years. In 2000, no one in Australia gave two. Mm. Two, you know, two brass razus about yeah. the, about the World Cup. I mean, I'm a huge league fan, and I barely remember that tournament. Mm. I do remember Matt Rogers, Matt Rogers' bleach blonde hair. Yeah, shocker. Um, that's coming back. Have you seen? Have you noticed? Oh, really? I might, I might start frosting those tips. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, I mean, it, again, it's great that they won, but I, I don't think that that. Um, you know, lit the fuse of, of, of interest and, and enthusiasm for rugby league, for the New Zealand national rugby league team mm. in New Zealand like it should have. Yeah. Had had New Zealand won any of the subsequent ones after that, like yep. so that when it started becoming regular, I think then it would have really done something. Okay. Um, so it because wouldn't... it was a, like, I mean, I get, it was held in Australia, and again, me, massive league fan, I, I it was, you know, I had to sort of seek it out, I yeah, guess. It, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't, like, not like the last one was. Mm. 
I, I think it's fair to say, though, that that result might have saved the concept because since then, we had a, a tournament in 2013 and now it's, it seems to be they've finally got a concerted, consolidated place in the calendar for the Rugby League World Cup. Mm. Uh, we had one in 2017. There's one in 2021 coming up in, in Britain. There's one in 2025. Where's that one going to be held? We don't know. Uh, TBD. <laughs> <laughs> but the point Depends is, on how many wealthy benefactors we can rustle up. Yeah, that's right. And the point is it's now you know a legitimate part of the calendar and you know about time. If you treat it seriously, then as an administrator, then the public will treat it seriously. Yeah. And I think we're at a time now where... There's, there's a bit more depth in International Rugby League. Um, players are, are keen to play for their uh, country of ancestry. Mm. So yeah, I think the, 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 the tweaking of the you know, um, Tier 2 nation or how you can um, yeah. nominate to play for yeah, Tier 2, Tier 3 nation has yeah. really, um, I guess, added depth to the potential playing squad. Yeah. Um, but as we were saying before... Each chapter is not necessarily only about the game. No, that's it's right. It's always about the stuff, the layers of the Sunday that sits in between. Yeah. And I reckon this one's got one of the best in the Roy Asatasi press oh, conference yeah. <laughs> to basically throw um, Gary Campbell under the bus. Oh, yeah. He is the worst. He's terrible coach. Can't work with him. He's awful. <laughs> and here's the reason why the New Zealand team um, is, is going so badly. That in itself would be like, you know, a wonderful little tasty yeah. morsel of, of, of um, you know, standard rugby league deception. Yeah. But it's, the fact that he had like a heart to heart with Gary Campbell what the week before and said, Don't worry, I've got you know, I trust you as my coach and I've got full faith in you, and I think you're the right man for the job. Yeah. Then goes on live TV <laughs> and tells the whole rugby league world that actually he sucks. Yeah, that's it's right. The- there was a bit where um Gary Campbell reflects and said he asked Roy Asatowski, Do you think I can do the job? Pretty direct question. The answer was yes. Yeah. <laughs> week later. And then <laughs> Well I think he was on holidays at the time as well. Yeah, that's Gary right. was having yeah. having a nice relaxing break, and to have his captain right, front dude. a live press conference to publicly state the team has no faith in the coach. That's just that's outstanding. So yeah, I mean, against all odds, victory for New Zealand. This was obviously assisted, coached by Wayne Bennett. Stephen and that Kenny. in itself is very visionary, very mm. progressive. The, yeah, the idea that because um, New Zealand, and I, I don't know if they still do, although no, they obviously don't anymore. But they wanted their coach to always be from New Zealand. Yeah, but the idea of getting a um, uh, you know, a, a master coach from mm. another country to come in, at least at the assistant level, I yeah. think it's, it's pretty, hadn't been done that often before outside of the Scottish example. Yeah, well, exactly right. I mean, especially for the big nations. I mean, and England's taken taken a leap out of that book now and they've got the uh, the master coach themselves now, don't they? Mm. Uh, yeah, so, that, I mean, that was that tournament and a, a wonderful period. And uh, I just wanted to finish Big Al in 2013. I don't really want to go through the tournament too much, but there was one game that really lives in the memory, lives in my memory. This is the semi-final between um, England and New Zealand, which well, I tell you what, this this was a a game that uh, really brought back memories for me because I, I stayed up to watch it, like in the middle of the night. It was a game for Wembley. This is like being a kid again in the early nineties when I stayed up. My dad would let me stay up to watch the first half. Um, <laughs> you know, Australia had you know in the halves Ricky Stewart and you know. Mahmoud in the centres and Steve Renoff, etc. And like I was saying before, Britain had players like Ellery Hanley and Martin Fyre. So this game, I was really excited to watch it and so thrilled that it really lived up to all expectations. You had <laughs> the the battle between Sam Burgess and Sonny Bill Williams. It was oh, yeah. one of the, the great rugby league battles. And Sam Burgess came out on top in that battle. 
um, was enormous, was man of the match. But uh, obviously the Kiwis won that match right on the buzzer with the Sean Johnson masterstroke. So, you know, that just really brought back memories of, of my rugby league watching youth. Uh, so 2013, and that, you know, Australia ended up winning the final easily against New Zealand who seemingly played their final in the semi-final. Mm. So, my goodness gracious me. So, after all those World Cup anecdotes and World Cup stories and tournaments, you know, how do you reflect on on it and how do you reflect on the book and what are your, what are your thoughts after that sort of, uh, after my rugby well, league word, I, I think word, what, word what, salad? What, I, what, what, a, what a wonderful salad it is. <laughs> what I take out of it is, uh, and you, we've already raised the point, mm. if you, if it's a regular fixture yeah. um, and is treated with the respect that a regular fixture deserves, yeah. then interest builds and success builds and, mm. and desire from players builds and yeah. it will become like a legitimate tournament on the world sporting stage. So like the Rugby Union World Cup has went, went through the same process. I think yeah, their first right. World Cup was like the final of their first World Cup I think was held at Concord Oval or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, but now look at it, it's, it's enormous because it was just a regular thing. And yeah. I think you can see that we've had these periods of success mm-hmm. but it's never been... Um, it's never been standardised. Yeah. So I think the last, like looking at the the the, the last three, 2008, 2013, 2017, mm, like yeah. every every time it's getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, which makes me super super hungry for 2021. Yeah. Um, but uh, like along outside of that as well, like again, it highlights like we keep going on and on gushing about French rugby league, but mm. without them, there'd be no World Cup. And it's, true. it's, it's pieces like this that. Um, I, I, like, I doubt no one in our audience is a, is a regular rugby league fan. I totally understand that. I wish they were. But we've got to get it out amongst the punters, the, the guys who you talk, talk, you know, Friday night footy with. Yeah, yeah. Tell them about the story of French rugby yes. league. It's so important. Yeah. Get them interested. And if we can get a commitment from the rugby league authorities out there, can they commit to us? I want to guarantee that in the future, rugby league World Cups will be A, every four years, and be like a tournament that lasts, let's say, four weeks rather than three years. <laughs> Can we not have one of those? So I think I'm pretty sure they'll be able to, to come to our teams yeah, on that. I think so. So I think that's uh, that's all we have time for. Big, did you want to have anything else for us? Or are you happy with that? Uh, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, like I said before, I'm just like, how long, what, what year is it? I don't want to actually, I don't want to date the podcast. That's right. But I, I'll, I'll, it's not it's yet. sometime in the future. <laughs> Um, but I just I loved I loved the last World Cup. Yeah. I can't wait for the next one and all the one after that. Oh, and Jamaica in this next oh, World Jamaica. Cup. Stop it! The, one, one the reggae day. warriors. Oh, imagine a final one day between Jamaica and the States or Canada and El Salvador. One day, one day. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking their finest hour. Uh, look out for it on uh, on the net on the Kindle get a physical yes, copy it's available on Kindle um, it's in, published by ABC Books I think so yeah. I'm sure they've still got it around ABC Shops ABC Centres do they still exist? Uh, I think a few of them do alright yeah. so buy it on buy it buy it, yeah, it so. alright and, and in a bonus for all of us we're about to speak to Andrew Marmot the author who gives us some really interesting insights into the making of the book and also you know Rugby League in New Zealand his homeland so stick around for that It is time to speak with the author of Their Finest Hour, and it's Andrew Marmot who's on the line. Hello, Andrew. Good fellas. How you going, mate? Very well, very well. 
Well, there's always rugby league happening, isn't there? Even in the off season. Even in the off season. Um, where are we speaking to you from today? Well, technically, I'm at X Golf in Mentone in Melbourne, which is a driving range simulation. Oh right, uh, Melbourne. <laughs> exactly yeah. where I am right now. <laughs> the, the beating heart of rugby league in this country, I'd say. It's a golf simulator in Melbourne. <laughs> Andrew, a lot of people might not know who you are. So I thought it's a good opportunity for you to tell us about your rugby league story. It sounds like you've got a, a bit of a Kiwi accent there, so and you're living in Melbourne. Uh, so how did you get into the game? Well, I got into it sort of through my family. So my, my dad used to like rugby league. Uh, his brother played uh, in the local competition. And I always remember when I was younger, because rugby union obviously helps cold supreme viewing when you're uh, in the winter over in New Zealand but I always was attracted to the to rugby league and I think it stems from uh, you know Stacey Jones and Matthew Ridge and you know Graham Hughes you know like you know Jones back in the zone <laughs> to Zupo, you know like that real effervescent commentary yes and, and that sort of for some reason it just sparked this, this interest so from there um, even the school I went to was very rugby union, you know, 50 All Blacks and mm. all this sort of stuff. And it was almost like uh, league was a sort of outer, you know, outer cousin. So You're a bit I of think, a contrarian, uh, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's, I mean, yeah, league certainly, I mean, that, that was kind of in the 90s. So that was when before, or just as the, the Warriors were entering the, the, the Australian Rugby League. So it was kind of a new thing anyway. So that's what I remember from there, I, you know, I just kept following it. I was, the, I was the only one in my circle of mates who actually liked league. Maybe a couple did, but they're all, you know, spouting union. So I thought, no, I'm getting on the league bandwagon. Yeah, love it. Damn um, right. So does that make you, uh, did you start as a Warriors fan or were you just... Definitely the Warriors, yeah. Definitely, you know, Stacey Jones and, and, uh, and Dean Bell and all those sort of guys. That was all kind of who I grew up with. And yeah. I, I remember the... When the Melbourne Storm sort of came into existence as well, I think I remember seeing about them because you know I had family who lived in Melbourne for years and years, so that was the other sort of affinity was was with the Melbourne Storm. But definitely the Warriors, you know, especially when they start the competition and you kind of when you're growing up, that's you know makes it even more real for me, I guess. So going on from that, so we'll talk a little bit about um, some of the content in the book. Obviously, it's all rugby league, World Cup focused. Do you have a standout Rugby League World Cup moment um, that uh, really stands out to you, whether it's in the book or not? Yeah, I think, guys, and I reckon the, I mean, the moment for me was probably the 1995 semi-final between Australia and New Zealand. And, um, that, I mean, as a game, it was such a fantastic game to, to sort of go through again and relive, you know, it's one of these games that right down to the wire with extra time and um, you know, some great names were playing and the Aussies were sort of, they, they were, you know, they fielded almost like their second string side and mm. some of the future greats, like, you know, Andrew Johns was there, Fittler was establishing himself, like it was it was that kind of uh, excitement factor and I remember talking to, you know, some of these guys, I think Tim Brasher, and it's just those sort of exact moments that for me it sort of brought, brought to life for him. You know, he was, he was saying how, of course, Matthew Ridge. Uh, so it was, you know, the Kiwis hit back to sort of level the score, level the scores, and Ridge had a kick from the sideline to try and put them in front, and he and he it. And yeah. Ted Bradshaw, I remember, was saying to me, "Oh, you know, I just we were just looking at each other. The, the Aussie guys were saying, look, just pray it's going to miss. <laughs> we know how good Ridge is, but let's just don't even look up and, <laughs> and it missed. 
they ended up winning. But uh, for a game moment, you know, that was pretty big. Yeah. And I also think the, uh, you know, the, the 2013 semi-final again, you know, England, New Zealand, what a game that was, wherever you were, whether you were over there or watching over here. Um, what a cracker. So with uh, New Zealand involved in so many of those um, amazing moments that, that you just highlighted, what, what do you think uh, is rugby, rugby league's place in what is rugby union mad New Zealand? Um, and what, what, how do you see its trajectory? Well, I think it's certainly, yeah, like the, uh, the sort of cousin that turns up to family barbecues every so often, you know, really passionate about their own little world, but not everyone's sort of on board with that particular individual. And it's the same, I think, with tries to compete in a, in a landscape that's, you know, heavily rugby union saturated and then from there, you know, how do you, how do you stand out? Because it's, it's, in the, it's in the blood, you know, it's in the psyche. Everyone grows up with rugby union. So, I, I mean, from going over there to do a book tour of sort of 2017, and I remember, and I was going over there, I think it was mid-year, and during that time, the British and Irish Lions were playing the All Blacks. Mm. And of course, it sort of almost slipped my mind because I thought, well, this is when the book, you know, that's when the, the publisher said, look, let's have the release a few months out from the World Cup. And it, it got virtually, it was so hard to sort of cut through that noise. Yeah. And uh, even, even guy, you know, even when, so if, if the Warriors aren't doing well and of course the Kiwis aren't doing well, then it's almost like everyone leaves the room, you know, yeah. <laughs> from a rugby perspective. And it's really hard to, to maintain that. So I think for rugby league to continue on, you know, especially because their local competition, the Bartercard Cup, has lost its, its luster a little bit. And yeah. a lot of the players, it's really weird, a lot of the players, because they get snapped up by Australian NRL clubs when they're 16 and 17 and 18, it's almost like they're, they're sort of Australian Kiwi players. It's, I see it's, it, man. It's, it's, it's just bizarre when you, when you really think about it. So from a national psyche and a, and a connection with the New Zealand rugby league team, it's almost like there's a bit of apathy because they don't see them enough to, to you know, they don't go around and, and show them the local schools like, say, the All Blacks do, or even the Warriors, for example, mm. because they're just not connected. So, yeah. it's, um, it, it, you know, it, they're going to keep punching through. You know, obviously, it's key for the Warriors to keep doing well and, and the Kiwis when they can. Um, but it's always going to be a struggle. You're always going to be up against it, and they just have to treat their sport as a, as a niche and yeah. not try and and you know, I'd be happy with that because it's fine to be a niche sport. Well, Andrew, do you, do you think uh, a second team in New Zealand would be, A, helpful? Do you think it could work? And could it work anywhere outside of Auckland? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I've said I tried that with some other, you know, but they tried that in Europe with Paris and mm. Wales and all, all these other places. So I think for it to be successful, A, you know, it would, it would attract... Um, it would dilute or spread the talent, not just away from Auckland, which is the big centre of rugby league in New Zealand anyway, but maybe somewhere like Wellington. Um, they could, you know, there's talk of them sort of coming in and potentially. So I think if, if they came in, it may attract, I mean, it would attract, say, uh, NRL players from Australia. Yeah. So that's, that's always good. It also would create a competition. But, you know, the thing is you have to look no further than the Warriors and think, well, 25 years... Yes, they've been to a couple of grand finals, but they're yet to win a competition. So is that enough sort of performance, um, have they made enough performance KPIs to suggest that you're going to be able to create another team? That's the struggle that yeah. you know, people who want to create that team would have. So yes and no, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. 
Now, just as you flick through the book, the first thing you notice is there's a forward by a man called Wayne Bennett. I'm not sure if our listeners would have heard of him. But um, how do you go about approaching someone like that? Do you just shoot him a text? Do you harass him after training? Do you knock on his uh, family home door? And, and just more broadly, uh, how do you go about – what was your reaction from the players you wanted to interview about this uh, book? Well, uh, your, your opening gambit there was pretty long, so I was going to slip in a joke about, you know, I texted him, but you already said that, so I won't try and make a joke <laughs> out of that. What, all I did really was I, uh, I emailed the Broncos and said, you know, uh, looking to chat to Wayne about this book – could he, you know, I know that he's, he loves international rugby league, we all know that. Would he be interested in writing something or having a quick interview about, you know, his thoughts on, um, you know, international game? Okay. And within, within 24 hours, I got a response saying, yeah, sure, if you write something. <laughs> so, I, so when I got off my chair, I read the next email, was, yeah, if you can write something, um, so almost ghost write it, yeah. he will, he'll amend it. leads nicely into um, our next question. Rugby League famously throws out its history, so I guess it, we've, it, it doesn't appreciate its past as much as other sports do. Um, and so throughout the research of this book, um, I'm assuming anything post-mid-80s might not have been that difficult to get archival footage or match reports and things like that. But for all those early, early matches, and I'm talking you know, all the way up to the initial 1954 tournament, wh- where did you find your source material? Type in like Puy or Beur, and and you get all this uh, all these articles that come out. Is that right? Oh, oh, 
To, uh, to visit Canberra, I say. I'm, I'm, <laughs> picturing, right. I'm picturing an episode recorded from the from the archives of the Rugby right. League section of yeah. the National Museum. <laughs> um, all right, so so you, you've done all this research, you've, you've put your heart and soul onto this book, um, and then it hits the market. So, um, what's what's the uh, the level of interest in rugby league history? Um, um, and like when you weigh them up against, you know, like uh, JT and Billy Slater, and even Wade Bennett has an autobiography out there. Um, what's the what's the um, level of interest? From a public point of view, look, I reckon it was you know, kind of niche audience, aren't you? Anyway, so rugby is a niche sport, and then you've got an even niche sport, which is the international game and the history of the game. So I think we we did uh, looking back, you know, that we we tried to sell about two thousand books, um, and we, we we got over that. Um, yeah. So, but that was me going to England, you know, all up to Leeds and. Manchester and uh, you know going across Australia and also going to New Zealand. Like I, I promoted it as much as someone could, you know, from a, an author perspective. Mm. Like physically go out and, and you know have book, to, like, book um, promotion at bookstores and stuff like that. So I mean, it, to me, it wasn't that surprising in a way. But um, the main like one of the things was the fact that yeah, New Zealand were having a shocker in terms of the Warriors were just being having a bad year in the NRL and the Kiwis were. Um, you know, they had that sort of all like the drug scandal with. Um, oh yeah. Uh, you know, like it just was. It was not a good time to promote it in New Zealand. And uh, and you know, from an Australian perspective, the uh, the interest was mainly around like Twitter, you know, Twitter people and um, and people who yeah appreciate the history and you know grew up with. Remember going to that event and yeah. I think the market was really probably you know the forty plus who'd been around for a while. And, I mean, I sort of expected that in a way um, because what I, the whole idea behind the book was to try and um, reach the younger, mm. the younger yeah. the younger group who grew up supporting the Cronulla Sharks and the North Queensland Cowboys but didn't really know the significance of who Rich Gaznier was and what Harry Bath did for Australia. And yeah. Wally Lewis was not just a Queensland great, but he also led Australia. You know, it, it was more about expanding the... Uh, the understanding of, of you know the younger generation to actually appreciate that. So that was the goal. But you know, to sum it up, I guess the market was um, yeah, it's, it's niche. It's, yeah, it's, and the, north, the, the same with the north of England. I like I like that that niche comment because we uh, we often joke that we are uh, a, a niche um, media medium uh, yeah. for a niche section of a very niche sport. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you actually ticked all the boxes because we are under 40 and it got us interested and uh, we learn a lot from the book. So, you know, A+. plus. Um, now, Andrew, your bio tells us that after university, you moved to France. Now, I'm not sure if you know, if you've listened to the show before, but we're, we're you know, slight fans of French rugby <laughs> league. So when we read that, our eyes widened markedly. Now, was that trip rugby league related? If not, why not? And did you experience any uh, French rugby league? So the first part of that was when I moved to France, it was actually 
actually, uh, I mean, I was doing a working holiday because I was 21. Yeah. And also, the rugby union World Cup was on, and I thought, look, you know, let's let's kill two birds with one stone. Uh, with one stone here. So it was that wasn't rugby league related. Okay. Um, um, however, I did when I came back when I went back last or a couple of years ago. I um, you know, I, I went to like I sort of linked up with the French rugby league, and we, you know, I saw a. Um, they were playing Jamaica and, and that sort of stuff on TV. Oh, wow. so I, I sort of got a whiff of, of French rugby league, and you know, and I'm a, there's a there's a, um, a man called Louis Bonnery. Yes, I've heard of him. Yeah. So French rugby league historian. He, yeah, exactly. Yes, so he you know he is an author and historian. He loves the, he loves the game. He used to play. And I when I was over in Perth for the coming for the NRL the, the World Cup over there, um, I met him. At a, at a horse racing um, book tour, oh, wow. uh, like a horse, a horse racing event, and there he was <laughs> for the men of league, Australian and there he was, and uh, I was blown away. He's Lewis Watering, a French rugby league man. So yeah. that was um, that's probably my closest taste to, uh, of French rugby league. But yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, I, hope, I hope they get back. I hope you know within our lifetimes they can. Yeah, well, we're all hoping for a, a Toulouse promotion into the Super League, and that will kickstart what will be the uh, re-emergence of yeah. French rugby league on we, the international stage, like a phoenix from the ashes. We believe. So, Andrew, that's about all we have time for. Uh, we just want to say congratulations on the book. Um, you've done a great job. We learnt so much about the history of the Rugby League World Cup and international rugby league in general since the 50s, because it's, as I said before, it's a... Uh, it's actually a handy little proxy uh, for the history of the game since that period. So, well done. And, uh, you know, looking forward to seeing your next uh, output. Thanks, guys. Oh, thanks so much for having me, having me on. And, yeah, all, keep going well with the podcast. I think it's, it's wonderful what you guys are doing. So, you guys should be celebrated too. Oh, <laughs> good on you, mate. Cheers, uh, mate. Thanks Love for it. your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.